Amen. Good morning, Love Chapel Hill. Um, back in our very first year of Love Chapel Hill, almost 13 years ago, it was our first uh, month of meeting here in the varsity. Uh, it was November, and uh, so we had only been going for just a little over a month. Some of y'all might have been here for these times. Abby, I think you were here for these times. Um, uh, we had a friend who was a part of our congregation there from the very beginning. Uh, his name was Taz. Anybody remember Taz? Couple people. All right. Uh, his real name was Paul, but he earned the nickname Taz from his friends on the street. Uh, they named him after the cartoon character, the Tasmanian Devil. All right, so that's spelling some things out for you. Okay, that's the kind of energy when he stepped in a room that was swirling around him. All right. Uh, Taz uh, experienced homelessness for a lot of his life, had been in decades uh, of addiction, uh, but was one of the early core members of this church congregation. And we're so blessed by his presence over and over again. Uh, I'll never forget the day that, the ta that Taz taught me an incredible lesson in my life. Um, we were in here. It was a very cold November morning. It had been raining uh, all night before and that morning. Um, and Taz usually showed up to church um, under the influence. Awesome. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Are we good? Okay. All right. Um, under the influence is what we'll say. Okay. Uh, but this particular morning, it was a really rough morning for Taz. And um, I remember we were preaching. <laughs> Y'all tell me what to do. <laughs> Want me to switch mics? John, give it up for John, everybody. Woo! To the rescue. <laughs> okay, that works. Great. Thanks, buddy. Okay, I'll lose this one altogether. Okay, cool. All right. Thank you, John. Let's give it up for John again. Sweet. And uh, so it was a really cold November morning. Uh, Taz um, was having a really rough day. And uh, I'll never forget it. We were um, preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. That was how we started as a church, was a series through the Sermon on the Mount. And that surprises absolutely no one, right? <laughs> and still obsessed with it, okay? Um, and so we're preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and I was really excited about this particular sermon because it was the sermon that preaches itself, all right? It was this uh, teaching that Jesus gives about the plank and the speck of dust. You know that one? Where Jesus says, uh, why do you worry about the speck of dust in your neighbor's eye when you have a plank in your own eye? First, remove the plank from your eye, and then you can worry about your neighbor's speck of dust, all right? So I was so excited. This is an incredible teaching of Jesus, and it's like I had a prop and everything, okay? I had a plank up here. I was like getting after it, all right? 
But I could get nowhere in my sermon because Taz kept falling asleep and he was snoring so loud <laughs> that every, no one was paying attention. We were all distracted. I was just, everyone was distracted. And when he woke up, it was worse. All right. Uh, he often would turn the sermon or announcement time into interactive dialogue moments. Okay. <laughs> And uh, which I kind of enjoyed, but it was really hard to get anyone to volunteer for announcements in that kind of environment. <laughs> um, but so uh, this day, it was like when he when he was awake, it was even worse. Just the, just the back and forth and the snoring was so loud. And I remember people around him who would keep waking him up and like beg him, please, like stop snoring. And I was getting so frustrated. I had worked really hard on this sermon. <laughs> And I was just so frustrated. And I remember there were two things happening in my mind. I'm in my mouth. I'm like preaching this sermon. And in my mind, I'm writing a sermon to Taz. All right. And I am thinking about what I'm about to say. And I'm thinking, OK, I'm about to stop. And I'm going to ask him to please try to stay awake. Please respect the other people that are around him. Really, I was thinking more about myself than them. Please respect the other people that are around you. And we're trying to worship God. We're trying to learn from the scriptures in this moment. So can you please be a part of that? And if not, then maybe you should come back when you're ready for that. And it was one of those moments where the Holy Spirit just struck me. With the kind of conviction that just stops you in your tracks. And suddenly, I sense these questions being just bombarding me. And I sensed the question, you're worried about him hearing the sermon. Are you hearing the sermon? Do you even realize what you're preaching on right now? How clear could this be? The speck of dust and the plank? And then I felt these questions just bombarding me. Where did you sleep last night? How was the temperature in the room in which you slept? Did you get rained on? When you closed your eyes, were you afraid that what you own in the bag next to you might get stolen by someone while you were sleeping? Are you paying attention at all? Such conviction, such conviction. And that was the day that Taz helped create what has become a rule here. <laughs> if somebody's sleeping, we let them sleep. We let them sleep and felt this conviction of the Holy Spirit of this is a warm, dark, sometimes too dark room. <laughs> <laughs> and if for one hour out of the week, a person can be in here and feel like they are comfortable and safe and peaceful enough to sleep, then please do that. That might be the most spiritual thing that can happen in that moment. And I have loved seeing that happen since then and the culture that you have helped to set together. And I have literally been standing in this spot and I've heard snoring and it has become music. <laughs> it's become worship. And I've looked out there and I've seen a person 
asleep, snoring. I have literally seen a moment where one person got up and was walking down the aisle to wake that person up and they got stopped by somebody else. And I was watching that play out of them stopping and saying, no, we're going to let them sleep. We're going to let them sleep. It was one of those moments where you have your plans set, where you know what you what direction you think you're going in. And then your eyes are open to realize that Jesus has been in the room all along. That Jesus is in the room with you. And it changes everything about where you are going. It changes everything about how you understand the moment that you're in. Have you ever experienced Jesus break in like that? It's not that he arrives. It's not just that he shows up. It's that you suddenly recognize that he's been there and he is there and his presence in the room changes everything. That's where we're going to be this morning. Luke chapter 24 and we're continuing where we picked up last week. You remember last week in Luke chapter 24, we talked about the two disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus. And along the road, Jesus is with them. Jesus appears. Jesus begins to talk with them, guide them. And then after Jesus reveals himself to them, they run the seven miles from Emmaus all the way back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples. And that's where the passage picks up today. Luke chapter 24, and we're going to start at verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Everything changes when you realize that Jesus is in the room with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Imagine Jesus just eating a, a piece of fish and starting to teach you. I love it. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. When he opened their, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, 
he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Jesus, thank you for the power of your word today. We ask that you would continue to teach us as you taught these disciples in that room, that we would recognize the reality of your presence with us in this room, that we would recognize the reality of the fulfillment of the promise that you make here right in this passage, that the Holy Spirit has been poured out to empower us to be witnesses, that we have experienced and been transformed by the reality that you suffered and you died and you were raised again on the third day that the good news of repentance and forgiveness of sins has been preached and it's changed our lives. And we ask that you would help us to continue to be witnesses of that, to bear witness to that earth-shaking reality. Help people to see it in our lives and help us to experience it today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this passage, we're just going to move through it uh, piece by piece like we like to do here. And so um, it says, while they were still talking, that's how it begins. All right. While they were still talking. And so we know that this is not just an independent story of itself is directly connected to the story that takes place right before it. While they were still talking, who is doing the talking? Where are they talking? As we've said, it's right on the hills of that Emmaus moment and that Emmaus event. These disciples who experienced Jesus and now they have run back to tell the news to the other disciples who are in hiding in Jerusalem. And they're in the midst of sharing this news and telling this story when Jesus appears and shows up right among them. And they recognize that Jesus is in the room. I love the way that Luke intentionally uses language here. Uh, and we're going to unpack this a little bit more as we keep moving through it. Uh, but Luke clearly has an intention here of dispelling the rumor that this is just an, a spiritual appearance of Jesus. Right. And right off the bat, we get the sense of this. And then he keeps building on that as we go through it. At the start, we get the sense because he uses this language of Jesus himself, Jesus himself. And this emphatic sense that this is not just a vision of Jesus. This is not just an appearance. It's not just a spiritual kind of revelation. It's not just this comforting sense that the presence of Jesus is going to carry on with them as they keep his memory alive and as they tell the stories of Jesus that somehow his legacy will continue on. It's not just that the spirit and essence of Jesus is there, but Jesus himself. The very physical, resurrected, risen Lord. The grave, the tomb is empty. This is not just a spirit. This is full reality. 
And this is a core part of Christian doctrine. We don't believe that we just simply kind of carry on in the spirit of Jesus and in the way of Jesus. We do walk in the way of Jesus. We do uh, live in and root ourselves in the teachings of Jesus. We do keep alive the stories of what happened in his life and his ministry. But we believe that that happens and that that's empowered because Jesus himself is alive. He is the resurrected king. In Christianity, we don't simply honor a martyr who gave his life for a good and worthy cause. We worship the once dead, now very much alive, very son of God, Jesus Christ, the resurrected king. That's what Christianity is about. So we don't simply carry on his legacy, he lives with us. He continues to lead us. Jesus is alive. Uh, sometimes you will hear people in their critique of the church and, and some of the critique is very fair and you know that we're open to that. We're open to always being honest about that and we need to be even more honest in ways that maybe we haven't been able to stomach ourselves and some of the things that we've been able to confess ourselves. And so this is not to push back against critique against the church. But sometimes you'll hear people say that Jesus, how upset Jesus would be with the church if he were alive today. If Jesus were here, I tell you what, he is here. <laughs> he is alive today. He continues to be alive today. There is no Jesus rolling over in his grave over what the church is doing because the tomb is empty. The stone has been rolled away. Jesus is the king and he reigns. He sits at the right hand of the father. He continues to lead and empower his church. Jesus is the king and Jesus is alive today. We are in this season of Easter tide, which reminds us that Easter is not simply one day that we celebrate, but it's a season that we live in. And even more than that, it's a reality that we continue to live that the world has been completely transformed by Jesus is alive. And so when Jesus shows up there in their midst, when Jesus reveals himself and they see him uh, and, and it is Jesus himself, he begins with this statement, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Now, it's, it's tempting to begin with the spiritualization of that and go into what all that what that might mean. And we're about to do that in just a moment. But we have to start with the reality that this is actually uh, a very common greeting in the Jewish culture of Jesus's day. And even today, to this day in Jewish culture, uh, the Hebrew word shalom means peace. And it's often used as a greeting at the beginning of meeting someone or a blessing as you are leaving. And so this is a very common thing that Jesus would have said to them. It's a common greeting. Peace be with you. It's like they turn around, see Jesus, and he's like, hello there. Yeah. All right. Obi-Wan Kenobi style. OK. <laughs> yes, that's my guy. All right. And so there's this very common kind of sense to it, right, of hello, peace be with you, which is kind of a hilarious way to begin when you have just overthrown death itself, okay? <laughs> but there are also layers to this. 
and what Jesus is saying to them. And by greeting them with peace be with you. There's a deep spiritual meaning to this. We remember and we recognize who these disciples are, what they have been through, and the reality that Jesus is in this room that has been rocked by grief and confusion and fear and disruption and doubt. And it's in the middle of all of that that he speaks peace. And he's still doing that for us today. He's still speaking that to the depths of each and every one of us today and into the culture around us. He is speaking the reality of peace, even in the midst of such chaos and disruption. How does Jesus do this after everything that has happened? And we start by thinking of everything that has happened to the disciples. And it's a powerful thing that he speaks peace to them after all that they've been through. But let's take a step back. Who else has been through something over these last few days? Jesus. After everything that he went through, after telling them over and over who he was, after showing them again and again the reality of who he was, of telling them how this was going to play out, of asking them to put their belief and faith in him. And in the moment when he needed them the most, what did they do? They scattered. They ran. They broke down. They denied him. They denied even knowing him. And that brotherhood and that fellowship and that friendship that he had poured into broke apart in the moment that he needed them the most. And now he's standing in this room full of people who denied him and ran and abandoned him. And yet he speaks to them, peace, peace. This is the hope of the gospel. The word gospel means good news. And to have the resurrected king who is so powerful that he's just overcome crucifixion by the Roman government, picked his body back up again and resurrected life, has overthrown death, and now he's standing in front of you in all of that power when you failed him? And his first word to you is peace. That is good news. That is good news. That is the hope of the gospel out of the mouth of this conquering king. That he is bringing peace even to those who failed him then and continue to fail him now. He is speaking peace immediately following his crucifixion and resurrection. A room full of people who, be, who failed him. And he speaks peace. This shows us the kind of character of this king and the kind of king that Jesus is. It shows us and reveals to us the driving force behind this journey towards the cross to begin with. That this has all been driven by his love. And that is good news. That is gospel hope. It points to the reality of the essence and the character of God. That love isn't just something that God does or gives or speaks. Love is who God is. The scriptures tell us that. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. God is love. That's hope. That is so filled with hope. That is such good news. God 
is love. Now that's not news as in like, oh, I just heard that for the first time. You probably have heard that before in your life. In fact, it's probably the first thing that we ever hear about God is that he is love. But I'm willing to bet it will be the last thing that we ever understand about him. It will take our entire lives to get our minds and hearts and lives around that reality. And we have to be reminded over and over again, God is love. Why would and how could the God of the universe love me? What did I ever do to deserve that? What did I ever do to earn that? And that again is the gospel and the good news. Nothing. You didn't do anything to earn that. And you can't do anything to deserve that. He doesn't love you because you deserve it. He loves you because he is love. And that means in those moments in your life, when you come face to face the, with the reality that it's not something we deserve, still the hope stands. It won't be shaken by the pattern of your life. It won't be shaken by what you experience and go through. It will remain true because he doesn't love you because you deserve it. He loves you because he is love. And that is the best news I can imagine. That is good news. And that is gospel hope. And that's part of the compelling beauty of his love. Paul tells us in the book of Romans in chapter 5, verse 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, driven by his love for us. Not because we earned it and deserved it. We didn't. We were prodigals, we're runaways, no way home. And he made a way home for us. He came on a rescue mission to bring us home and to bring us into a reconciled relationship with him. This is the kind of love that knows no bounds. There is no one beyond its reach. No one. There's no such thing as a person who's far from God. No such thing. Because he's pursuing every single one of us in his love. There's no place that this love is afraid to go. This love went to hell and back to win your redemption and to show the truth and the reality of how far his love is willing to go. This is the kind of love that has the courage to climb every wall built by fear, to cross every line drawn by hate. It will not be held back. Not even the grave could hold it back. Hallelujah. Not even the grave. And so in the midst of this, we see the extravagance of his love. It's not the kind of thing that he rations or protects, but he pours out freely. And we see him standing there in the middle of this room of people who failed him, deniers, doubters. And what's his first word? Peace. Peace. That is how much he loves you. Not because you deserve it. You can let that pressure fall right off of your shoulders. It's because he's love. And it is who he is.
as the story goes on, it says that the disciples respond to this greeting of peace be with you by being startled and frightened. Yeah, that's a pretty good response. All right, that is the only logical response to seeing someone that you knew quite firmly is dead, and now here they are standing in front of you, okay? This is the only way you respond to the disorienting experience of resurrection, all right? Back to my friend Taz for a moment. Taz was a part of our church community, not just there at the beginning, but for several years uh, throughout those early years of Love Chapel Hill. And I'll never forget the heartbreaking phone call I got that told me that Taz had passed away. And so uh, as his church family, um, we pulled together a memorial service for him. We came downtown and asked around, and sure enough, word had spread all around downtown. The, uh, police officers and everyone on the street saying the same thing. And so we invited everyone who knew Taz as part of our church community and part of the broader community to come to a memorial service. And it was beautiful. We had it over on the green across from the old well. And people gathered together and they told stories and uh, they laughed and they cried. And then we laughed again the next day when we found out he wasn't actually dead. <laughs> That's, that's it. Linda, Josh, the, I heard, Linda said, what? And Josh said, are you serious? That was my response. <laughs> that was my. <laughs> so he earned a new nickname that day, Tazarus. <laughs> He was really moved that we had done that for him. <laughs> the one friend that I called of his and I was like, hey, I just need to verify that this is true. And he didn't call me back. And I was like, he must be grieving and mourning. And he calls me back the day after the memorial service. And he's like, hey, thanks for doing that for him. But uh, he's not dead. <laughs> It was a close call there, but he made a miraculous recovery. I'm like, I would say so, all right? <laughs> it was great when he showed back up at church. It was awesome. <laughs> Resurrection can be a disorienting experience, all right? It's not what you are expecting. Of course, they were startled and frightened. That's how you respond when you know someone was dead. And then you see that they are alive. They were startled and frightened. And the presence and the peace of Jesus. Remember, Jesus has already spoken peace. His presence is there. He's spoken peace. He's declaring peace to them. And yet their response is still that they are startled and frightened. And of course they are. And that makes perfect sense. And the same is often true for us. The presence and the peace of Jesus doesn't automatically remove all of the fear and the pain and the trauma of what they have been through together. It doesn't remove the reality of them 
experiencing Jesus being crucified. It doesn't remove the reality that there is still a threat against their lives. And that's why they're hiding out behind locked doors. Because the same thing that happened to Jesus could very easily happen to them. So the fear is still there. The pain is still there. The trauma is still there. The threat is still there. The danger is still there. And yet in the midst of all of that, peace is the reigning reality. Of course, they're still startled and frightened, but peace is there in the midst of it. And in the story of Jesus, peace doesn't mean the passive absence of conflict. It means the abiding, empowering, defiant, active presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Reigning in the midst even of the chaos that is still swirling around. It's like I tell my kids when they are afraid. I tell them that it's okay to be afraid. Not because I want them to be fearful kids and, you know, afraid of everything around the corner, but to acknowledge the reality of that emotion and to tell them it's okay to be afraid. Does that mean I don't want them to be courageous? Of course I want them to be courageous. But they can't be courageous until they first admit that they're afraid. You know why? When do you need courage? When you're afraid. If you're not afraid, you don't need courage. If you're not afraid, you don't need to be brave. You just keep rolling on. When you need courage is when you are experiencing fear, when you are afraid, when you admit it, when you start to move forward even in the midst of that fear and you recognize that courage is waiting just on the other side of that moving forward. It's something that you step into. You don't need courage unless you are afraid. So it's okay to be afraid. And that's when courage finds you. The same is true here for these disciples. Of course they're startled and afraid. It's the only logical response to the disorienting reality of resurrection. They had no category for this. And yet Jesus meets them in that fear, in that disillusionment, in that disorientation. And He, in His presence, is their peace in the midst of it. Jesus then asked them this question, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise? Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise? Now, one of my first reactions to this is uh, to, to think, you know, we always talk here about how Jesus is okay with our questions, right? How Jesus welcomes our questions. He's not afraid of our questions. He wants you to bring the questions. So why is Jesus pushing them here on this doubt? and on the presence of doubt in their minds. I thought he was okay with questions. I thought he welcomes questions. He absolutely does. But the other side of that coin, the very real reality about walking with Jesus is he welcomes your questions, but he also warns you, you better get ready for his. Because he will have some questions too. He knows how to ask questions. And if you look through the ministry of Jesus, you see that this is a central part of his teaching style. It was a central part of, of, of a common rabbi teaching style in first century Judaism, for sure. But Jesus is the master of this. 
He is so good with this. And throughout the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus asks more questions than he answers. Jesus asks more questions than he answers. Over and over again, Jesus will get a question. And how does he respond to that question? Not by giving an answer, but often by giving another question. And by drawing you into the process. And so, yes, he's going to welcome your questions, but you have to prepare yourself for that pathway. He's going to draw you into the process and he's going to ask questions, too. I have a friend and a mentor named Wayne Schmidt, and he says this. Some of the turning point moments of life came not when God gave me an answer, but when he asked me a question. Isn't that beautiful? We often want the answer because it's closed and it's tight and it's clean. But the question is open and invites you to walk a pathway and invites you into the process of exploration and discovery as he walks beside you and guides you in that. Yes, he loves your questions and he loves his too and he's got some for you. So be ready. It's part of what it means to follow him. Jesus goes on and he says, see my hands and my feet when they are when he's trying to show them the reality. Remember, it said Jesus himself. And then he says to them, it is I myself. And over and over again, trying to say this isn't just a spiritual appearance. This isn't just a revelation of a vision. This is Jesus himself. And he offers his own hands and feet to them. And he says, touch me and see that I am real. Now, why would Jesus in this moment offer his hands and his feet as evidence that it's really him? Somebody answer that question. Why would Jesus offer his hands and feet? There it is, Tinley. Okay, awesome, Linda. Yep. Yeah, that's right, Linda. Exactly. And Tinley says, because his hands and his feet were pierced. And so they can see the proof right there. This is him. This is him. This is not something that looks like him. This is him. And he still has his scars on his hands and his feet. His scars. Isn't that interesting? This is the resurrected Jesus. This is Jesus who has overcome Death. He was dead and now he's alive. He has the power to do anything. If he can overcome the reality of death, don't you think he could also overcome the brutal effects of crucifixion? If he could come back to life, couldn't he heal his own wounds? And yet he intentionally shows them that he has kept his own scars. He could have erased them, but instead he keeps them. And that is on purpose. It's an ongoing declaration to us of his love for us and of his power to heal. It runs all the way through scripture. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 of the book of Isaiah prophesies this and of speaking of this suffering servant who will bring redemption makes this statement by his wounds we are healed 
And Jesus shows that he's still carrying those wounds. And apparently it wasn't just something for that moment right after resurrection. Apparently it's something that continues on. Because as we read through the rest of the witness of Scripture, we see in the book of Revelation, we get this, this the, the curtain pulled back on the reality of who Jesus is. And we're told to turn and to look at Jesus, who is the reigning king, and he's referred to as the Lion of Judah, reigning on his throne. Turn and look at him in his glory and power. And when John turns and looks, what John records is that he did not actually see a lion. But what did he see instead? The lamb, a sacrificed lamb on the throne. Wow. Jesus intentionally continues to carry his scars. And that's good news, too. That's good news for us, because who in this room doesn't carry scars? And who in this room at some point hasn't thought that my scars, if you really knew what I have been through, if you really knew what I have done, if you knew what has happened to me, if you knew my story, if you knew my history, if you knew my scars, there was, there's no way that you would talk to me about good news and hope. There's no way that that's good for me. There's no way. I'm disqualified. And we think that our scars disqualify us. We think that when he sees our scars, he's going to turn his head away from us. But he does not turn his head away from your scars. Instead, he shows you his own. And he says, I carry them too. I still carry them too. And he allows us to trace the storyline of redemption by the marks on his hands and his feet. And his scars remind us that what he has endured, what he has overcome, and what he has the power to heal in us. Henry Nouwen refers to him as the wounded healer. What a beautiful reality. He is not scared away by wounded people because he is one. And he continues to proclaim that to us to this very day. Wrapping up here, uh, the last piece that we want to point out is this odd moment of eating fish. All right, we can't get past that, okay? So Jesus has this moment and Luke is going to all of this extent to just say over and over, this is not just a spiritual kind of reality. This is a reality kind of reality. It's spiritual and physical and the whole fullness of it all together at once. Jesus is actually alive. Jesus is actually alive. And so he, he points that out um, through the showing of the hands through the repeating of Jesus himself and Jesus saying, it is I myself. And then we get Jesus saying to them, look at my hands and my feet. See that I am flesh and bones. I'm flesh and bones. There's substance and there's structure to me, right? And then it goes to this next point of he eats fish, okay? <laughs> Takes it to that next physical kind of level. Why fish? 
Why broiled fish? Well, first of all, it's because what they had. All right, so we don't really need to look that much beyond that. It's what they had in the room, so they hand in what they have. But then as we press beyond that, we start to remember the symbolism of fish and what that would have meant to this group. Yes, it was something that was there, but as Jesus takes that fish and begins to share that meal with them, how many other past meals start coming into mind for these disciples? How many times did they share fish over a campfire together out by the Sea of Galilee? Takes them back to their memories with him. For Peter and Andrew and James and John, who would remember that they were out fishing, they were fishermen, when Jesus found them and invited them to become his first disciples. And they left those nets and those boats behind and they followed Jesus. And they would remember that. And in Luke's telling of that calling story in Luke chapter 5, we get the moment where Jesus has that miraculous catch of fish, empowers this miraculous catch of fish for them, so much so that it almost sunk the boat. So they're going to remember that and how over and over again that was a part of their story. But then there's one more detail here in Luke's narrative. We remember Emmaus, the story right before this. How does Jesus reveal to them that it's him? When do they realize that it's Jesus? Who remembers when he broke bread. So here we go, another food moment, another table moment, and reminds us how much of life happened for them around the table. But it's not just food. What were the first lines of the passage that we read today? While they were still talking, right? Direct connection to the Emmaus story. Like we're supposed to see them overlapping. We're supposed to see him overlapping. And so to one set of disciples, he reveals himself by breaking bread. To another set, he reveals himself by eating fish. And suddenly we see those two symbols start to come together of the bread and the fish. And what does that remind us of? Feeding of the 5,000. Exactly. And in every single miracle, we say this over and over again, but in every single miracle, they are designed to point to two things, to the identity of Jesus and to the mission of Jesus. And here at the end of Luke, as he closes out this story of Jesus, he brings us back to this key miracle of feeding of the 5,000. And we have Jesus breaking bread and we have Jesus eating fish and we see the fish and the bread coming together. And it reminds us again of this miracle. Oddly enough, the feeding of the 5,000 is such a key miracle in the Gospels. It's the only miracle besides the resurrection, of course. All right. But besides the resurrection, it's the only miracle that is told in all four Gospels. Isn't that interesting? So that tells us something. There's something key here. And then Luke seems to intentionally want to draw us to this point at the end of the story of pulling us back to that moment of Jesus with the bread, of Jesus with the fish, and he takes us back to that hillside moment of that miracle. And he points once again to the identity and the mission of Jesus, what he is commissioning them to go out and to preach to the world, starting at Jerusalem and then the story continuing on from there, it's the message that Jesus is the bread of life 
and that he was broken for us to bring us into healing and to bring us into a reconciled relationship with God. It's the message that he is the powerful provider who multiplies his grace in overflowing abundance. He will never run out of his grace and love for you. There will be baskets and baskets of leftovers that you won't even know what else to do with. And it's the promise at the heart of it all that he is the host of a feast. And it's a reminder to us that sometimes there will be people who are very close to Jesus and who are clearly disciples of Jesus, but who will often say, Jesus, I don't think they should be here. I think you should send them away. Remember how that happens at that story? They shouldn't be here anymore, Jesus. I think you should send them away. And Jesus answers back them away in fact tell them to have a seat because I am about to roll out a feast and I am about to open up a feast in which there will be room for anyone who wants to come there will always be room and there will always be space for one more it will never run out and there will be baskets overflowing at the end that we won't even know what to do with. When others have sent you away, even those who are followers of Jesus, even those who say, I'm one of his closest, Jesus steps around them and says, I'm not sending you away. Have a seat. The feast is for you too. We're going to remember that as we step to the table. But one last thing here, our college students. First, I'm gonna ask for our college graduates, those who are graduating this year, either uh, from grad school, PhD work, undergrad, all the full range. Would you stand up if you're one of those graduates this year? We love you. Keep standing. Keep standing. <laughs> we love you and we're proud of you. And we're so grateful that we have been able to be a part of this family together. Thank you for everything that you've poured in. And we're so grateful. And we bless you as you go out. Now keep standing. All right. Now I'm going to ask for all of our college students who are here. Any college student who is here, would you please stand? Yes. Let's give it up for these folks, too. And y'all don't sit down either. Keep standing. From our very beginning, college students were some of the first people to buy into Love Chapel Hill and first ones to make this happen. Some of them are still in this room, and there's deep, deep gratitude and love for that. And we just want to say to you, thank you for what you bring to this church family. Thank you for the way that you shape who we are, for the way that you bring so much heart and soul, for the way that you bring incredible insight and questions that keep us sharp and make sure that we're continuing to ask the questions and wrestle with the things that we need to wrestle with 
Thank you for who you are. Thank you for being open and being a part of this church family with us. So I'm going to read something over all of you here at the close. Uh, this is the end of the Gospel of Luke. And something that stands out to me are these words. Talking about Jesus when he's ascending into heaven after his resurrection. And it says, while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. That stands out to me that it's not just he blessed them and then he went up, but he was still blessing them as he went. It's like he just didn't stop. All right. That blessing continued and it was in the midst of that blessing. And for those disciples who were there for that moment, that was their final vision of Jesus was him speaking blessing over them. And I just want you to see that today. And I want you to feel that from us as a church family today, that we bless you. And for those who are moving away and starting new things, we're behind you. We love you. We're so proud of you. For those who are going home and, and will be gone over the summer, same to you. We love you. And we're so proud of you. And we're praying for all of you through the exams this week. All right. So let's pray. Yeah. Let's pray a blessing together over these students. Jesus, thank you for your people. Thank you for what they bring to this church and how they lead this church. Thank you that you have made us a sending church. And we stand in that today and we know that your hands are outstretched and are blessing them. And so we join you in that. And we speak blessing over them as they go. And I pray that that would be an enduring image for them over and over again, that they would remember that your hands are continually extended to them in blessing and in blessing and in blessing and in blessing. So in your name we pray. Amen. 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 Mm -hmm. Let's share in the meal together. As Jesus did there around the table at Emmaus and as he did last night with his disciples and as he had done many times before. On that last night with his disciples, Jesus took the bread that was there on the table and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for the healing of the world. And then he took the cup that was on the table and he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. My blood poured out for the salvation of the world. Every time that you taste this meal and share in this meal together, remember what I have done and remember who you are because of it. And never fail to continue to extend this feast to the world everywhere you go. And even when others send you away, Jesus says, no, have a seat. This feast is for you. We invite you to come and to share in this meal together. And as you come forward, you will receive a piece of the bread and a cup. We'll ask that you'll then make your way across this front row and then back to your row. Uh, and you'll be relieved row by row for that. Come and share in the feast together, this feast that is for you. Amen.